Welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Today I would like to talk about something called the Purkinje effect, or also known as the Purkinje shift, and describe that visual phenomenon and talk about how it might play a role and why Mary, the mother of Jesus in Christian art, is depicted in a blue robe. The Purkinje shift is named for the Czechoslovakian anatomist and physiologist Jan Evaglesi Purkinje, who identified this visual phenomenon and described it in 1819. What the Purkinje effect explains is why chromatic intensities of colors change at different rates of luminosity, of light luminosity. In low light, the rods play a greater role in color vision, and they are less affected by longer wavelengths of light, such as the red wavelengths. Greens and blues, however, have shorter wavelengths and are able to stimulate the short wavelength and medium wavelength cones, the S and M cones, at lower light levels. So, together with the rods, as light diminishes, the blues and greens in the environment will be will remain more vivid. I mean, they will lower in intensity in general just because the light is going down, but they will remain more active as the red sensitivity diminishes. So you can observe this phenomenon at dusk and dawn in the lowering dim lights, and especially here in Minnesota, we're at the end of uh, July, and so the environment is very green right now. The garden is full speed ahead. And so the orange and red flowers that we have out there, I've, I watch nightly. The, as the light goes down, sometimes the flowers appear, the red flowers will appear to be almost black and totally devoid of light, while I can still sense a relatively glowing blueness and greenness, you know, kind of a bluish green to the foliage around the otherwise red flowers. I think that this phenomena speaks to how many of the blue cones on the retina are actually scattered out and amongst the rod cells in the perimeter uh, areas of the globe of the interior of the eye, it's otherwise what we would call our peripheral vision. So if you th- try to imagine it, we have the cone cells of our eyes are more or less on the other side of the lens and the pupil. And in the very center of that area, 
of uh, highest visual acuity is an area called the fovea and the foveola. In that area, there's mostly red and green uh, sensitive cone cells. Especially in the foveola, I think that there are only red and green cone cells. And then as you go out, there starts to become blue cells in the, on the macula and in the fovea. But I think most of them are scattered out and amongst the rest of the globe, um, in and amongst the, um, the rods. And kind of a typical retina contains 120 million rods and approximately 6 million cones. The rods basically don't do much for color vision, and I think that they're kind of asleep uh, during the day and during any kind of like bright light or anything above like moonlight kind of setting, and they become much more active in, in our vision once we're in those darker situations, which thinking about it like the next time you're outside do you detect a little bit of blue like in that black silhouette of all the shapes that are around you in the rods and and also too uh in rod vision because the rods are not directly across from our pupils but more like around the other like 80 percent of the interior of the eye it can be more effective to look at something or to be able to focus on something if you look slightly askew or aside, not directly at it, so that the light goes in through your pupil and hits those rods. So the next time you lose your keys at night, don't look at the ground, just look around <laughs> and you might catch, it out of, catch your keys out of your peripheral vision. So uh, Purkinje noticed this, um, this effect that's named for him in um, 1819. And however, it had been kind of out there, it just hadn't been shown or demonstrated scientifically. Goethe wrote about it and n named it, or he didn't name it, but he talked, he spoke of this effect and wrote about it uh, like 50 or more years earlier. And I think that that might have something to do with what Goethe refers to as edge colors. And, but that'll be another podcast because there's a lot going on there with Goethe and, and edge colors. Now, what does this have to do with the Virgin Mary being painted blue, her mantle, as it's called, her robe? What does that have to do with her being painted blue? My art history classes, I, I came up learning that the reason that Mary is painted in a blue robe is because that particular blue is ultramarine blue and it is derived from grinding the lapis lazuli mineral that is mined at the time and I think still today I think it chiefly comes out of Afghanistan and so this material lapis as it was at the time the most valuable uh, commodity on the planet, more valuable than gold and diamonds. Therefore, if you had a Mary with a lot of blue, then that kind of projected that the wealth of the patron or the community or what have you. So the bigger the Mary, the richer the person who uh, sponsored it. And there's actually like uh, to that point, there, there are like contracts that stipulate the exact amount that of uh, lapis lazuli ultramarine blue was to be used in, in certain paintings. 
So the bigger the Mary, the richer the patron. I should point out a really great resource for me over the years about uh, Renaissance painting and some of these color, uh, well, what are known as the modes of Renaissance painting. I've gotten from reading uh, Marsha Hall, specifically her book called uh, Color and Meaning, Practice and Theory in Renaissance Painting. It's a great book. I'll do a podcast on what are known as the four canons of Renaissance painting, uh, Sfumato, Chiaroscuro, Unioni, and Cangiantissimo, which Hall describes in great detail in her book. And Hall, when writing about uh, Sanino Sanini's uh, book, A Craftsman's Handbook, actually cites the techniques that he's advising as beneficial given the low lighting, so candlelight or low lighting through stained glass windows, at maintaining the visibility of the paintings and frescoes within the church. And so without naming it, she's basically alluding to this Purkinje shift that takes place in that if you're walking into a darkened church and it, there's just like these candles and stuff like that before modern you know, electric illumination, that Mary would be, and generally, you know, Mary is, is kind of the biggest character too in, in this um, approach to painting because she's the most important person in the painting, so they made her the biggest. So walking into that church as your red cone cells kind of start to take a little bit of a nap, those blue tones and, and greenish blues will remain stronger, more vibrant. So hence, maybe there's a bit of that going on with, with Mary being blue and not so much people trying to show off how, how rich they were by having a lot of uh, lapis lazuli. Now one thing to note in some of those frescoes, if you're traveling through Italy or Europe and you're seeing these Marys, they may look different types of blues, and some of them might actually seem like more like a black or something like that, or like a red, like a red um, sepia tone type uh, thing. And what's happening there is, one, due to the, the price of the lapis lazuli's mineral, it was often applied in what is termed secco in uh, fresco painting, which means uh, to be applied the day after the original bouillon. I, I think I'm saying that right. The, the real fresco. So the plaster, you got the plaster, you put it on the wall, that plaster sets up a little bit, and then you start applying like pigments to it and various things so that the pigments are being mixed directly into the fresco, and that's called bouillon fresco. And then if, that, if you let that sit for a day and come back to it overnight, you can apply pigments in different ways in a term that's called a secco. And so the secco layer is not always as uh, strongly adhered. It doesn't bind as well, so it can get knocked off or brushed off like let's say they put a drapery over the thing and it's going back and forth i think that's what they did to the last supper da vinci's last supper there was a big drapery going over the thing and so and then also too the lapis lazuli didn't react well to to the water of the plaster itself so they avoided mixing it directly into the plaster 
And so the reason then why often the um, there would be like you'd be looking at a reddish, brownish looking Mary robe or a black robe is that like Sanini in his book on uh, painting, let's see here, I can't get the reference here. So the Craftsman's Handbook, I'll have to do a whole episode on this because it's basically like reading a cookbook for painters and it's like these short little chapters on how to do stuff. And so he's got a chapter called to make a drapery or a mantle for Our Lady with azurite or ultramarine blue. And he goes on to describe how to, how to do that. And he recommends to artists, and so artists like had this book and they followed it like, like a recipe. And so he recommends that first bouillon layer of fresco to be painted with a, a color called cinnaper mixed with black. And cinnaper is a type of red. And so I think it's like two parts cinnaper and one part black. And so that would be on the fresco, and then they'd come over the next day and apply this ultramarine blue uh, pigment, a secco, and, um, and then, then we'd end up with this red robe of Mary, and sometimes you can see this like blue or uh, reddish undertone shining through the blue. They also used azurite, which is a type of greenish blue, when they wanted to save a little money. And that was also applied a a secco. And they would use indigo as well, because the indigo would turn black if it was mixed with the plaster. Those were even more fragile. But if, yeah, so if you ever see like a Mary with a really black mantle, it could be that they mixed, they used indigo uh, directly into into the plaster. I don't know. I'd have to check on that, though. But um, so then this azurite color with Mary's robes, let's get a little off topic here, but one of my side projects has been trying to figure out why the colors of the flag of the United States are what they are, because uh, I haven't been able to prove this, but I think that they might be red, white, and blue because of the colors that Mary has been painted historically going back to uh, the Byzantine times when the monks in Constantinople, evidently the, the princess of uh, Constantinople wore blue robes and that gave the monks that were doing illuminated manuscripts the idea to paint Mary's robes blue and specifically lapis lazuli blue. And so, yeah, the flag. All right, so red, white, and blue. Yeah, so Mary, okay, so we talked about the blue robe, but she's usually shown wearing um, like a red or a white smock or tunic underneath that blue robe and often a white headdress. So more often than not, and if you look at like a Raphael painting of, um, or something like that, Mary has got like uh, a red and sometimes there's, it looks like there's like multiple garments underneath like her tunic. So a white tunic with a red one and then this blue robe. And so I've been trying to figure out, can we trace this forward to why exactly the colors of the flag of the U.S. are this red, white, and blue? And I haven't exactly figured it out, but this is how far I've gotten. So there's this document from 1853 that I believe was commissioned by Congress to determine what became the Great Seal of the United States. And in that document, it describes a little bit about the origin of some of the colors that ended up in the Great Seal. 
as they relate to the colors of the actual flag. And so in that document, they described the stars as a constellation, uh, stars on a blue field, as based on the constellation Lyra, symbolizing unity. And early in the design ideas of the flag, John Adams arranged the 13 white stars in the shape of a, of a lyre, a lyre, lyre, a lyre, a lyre. <laughs> I always have problems with that word. So it's like this harp looking thing. And there's drawings of it that I found where it actually has the little lyre harp drawn right on the flag. It looks kind of crazy. But anyway, so the stars are supposed to symbolize the night sky. So then I asked myself, why is the field then not black? Why is it blue? And that's where I started thinking, well, if it's if it has anything to do with the way Mary was painted, they'd be bringing this this palette basically through the thousands of years it has existed. But that's where the trail goes a little cold here. And so because they don't go on to describe the red and the white as they describe it in terms like the red is for bravery and the white is for something else and it's like these very abstract meaningless terms he does they do write that the blue is specifically azurite blue azure blue from the azurite uh, stone and ground and so that blue uh, you can trace that back and i believe they reference it in the great seal as uh, related to the field behind the French fleur-de-lis. So then if I go back and look at uh, the flag of Paris, uh, red and blue, or I don't know if it's the flag of Paris. Yeah, well, red and blue to the color, the, they're the historical colors of Paris, and red is, is identified a reference to St. Denis and the blue to St. Martin. Now over in England and Scotland, we have red and blue as well, and the Red Cross of England represented St. George. And the Blue Cross of Scotland, which was more like an X, I believe, uh, referenced St. Andrew. And so the two crosses put together create the Union Jack. So then I'm like, all right, well, maybe this has nothing to do with Mary, and it has more to do with these other saints and the, and the colors that they represent. And then also, too, the language of, the f of these colors becomes very poetic and nonspecific. And, and then there's, there's evidence of this guy, Francis Hopkins, uh, may have been the actual designer of the flag. And I can't find much information about him. So there I'm kind of stuck again. Oh, one, one kind of fascinating thing that came up in this whole thing is evidently George Washington wanted to have a six-pointed star uh, representing each state. And Betsy Ross talked him out of it because she could evidently fold a piece of cloth and with one snip make a star with, uh, with five points. Well, that'll wrap it up for today. So we have the Perkinji shift brought to us by Jan Perkinji and the idea that blues and Blue-greens stay chromatically intense as the light source diminishes in human color vision. So I'm thinking about Mary and the origins of why that robe is blue. We have Sonino Sonini and his book, The Craftsman's Handbook, that we will revisit at uh, 
later episode, it is filled with fascinating things. For instance, he recommends using cheese as glue and has a recipe for that. So cheese as glue. You could take your you could take the flavor factor of your workshop to the next level by using by going to the grocery store and getting a fine selection of cheeses the next time you want to glue something up. Mmm, yes. And then we have my partial investigation into the origin colors of the US flag, which I think so far I've just learned that there's a lot of question marks there. But I think it's safe to say, based on the drawings that I saw from John Adams, that uh, he may, the guy might have been good at a few things, but he was a terrible graphic designer. And so, yes, Perkinji, the Perkinji shift. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested, and follow Chromosphere, the Color Theory Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinsky for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinsky again for their production, consulting, and editing.